Hello everyone, welcome to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest today is Dr. Angela Hosek, who is an assistant professor in the Ohio University's School of Communication Studies, where she is also director of the public speaking course that serves nearly 2,000 students annually. We will be discussing various issues related to millennial and post-millennial learners, including how to transition traditional teaching approaches to better meet the needs of contemporary students. Dr. Hosek received her PhD from the University of Nebraska and has published multiple research articles exploring classroom communication and intergroup dynamics. Angela, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you. Uh, let's start by talking about your research interests. Uh, you, you focus on uh, group dynamics and identity and the things that you research. Can you talk about some of the research projects that you've done and what you mean by those topics? Sure. So the lion's share of my recent work has really been looking at how um, notions of intergroup identity and social identity um, happen in the classroom. So what I mean by that is how the social groups that we belong to, that we have an affinity for, that we feel are salient to who we are, and these can be things like age, gender, sexual identity, political affiliation, race, ethnicity, um, and how that impacts the classroom environment. So um, when I started getting interested in this research, I was always struck by the students in your class that would gravitate toward you and some that wouldn't. And I always wondered why that happened. And I have a, a, a good story that kind of launched me into thinking about this. I had um, a African-American non-traditional female student who was in a class at Nebraska with me. And she was probably the oldest student in the class, and the majority of the other students were Caucasian. And I remember at the end of the class, she had come up to me and told me how many times she had thought about dropping the class. And she said, the reason why I didn't was because I identified with you as a woman, and you were also a non-traditional student who had had work and life experience. And if it wasn't for having you as a teacher, I would have dropped this class because I couldn't find any connection to the other students in the class. So during my doctoral work, it made me think something's going on here that we don't know enough about in the literature. So we spent a lot of time in our literature looking at teacher behaviors and how that impacts student learning and how the things that students do in the classroom. And I was always struck by this other notion of identity, even though I didn't know that that's what it was at the time, or power dynamics, or all those other things that happen outside of the classroom uh, that we don't talk too much about how those come to bear in the instructional environment. And um, as Sprague and other folks would talk about, that we can't be void of those things, right? All of the things that happen outside, we come to the classroom with. Um, so I believe it's Stephen Brookfield talks about how we teach who we are. And I've often thought that our students kind of learn who they are too, right? So they come to the class having all those identities as well. And I think it's a disservice if we think those things don't impact the instructional environment. So what I've done with a lot of my work is look at some of those traditional behaviors and things that we know in the literature about teacher behaviors, things like self-disclosure, clarity, relevance, how confirming or disconfirming you are as a teacher, and how immediate you are with your students, how uh, if any of those behaviors are impacted by those identity factors. So how similar your students think they are to you based on your identity or how different they think um, they are toward you and how that imp impacts their um, liking and appreciation for what they're learning or their empowerment in the classroom or even how much they participate. And I was interested in potentially which which ones of those factors, whether it's your, your teacher credibility or your identity, that kind of impacts all of that more. So uh, most of my work to date has really showed that some of the identity factors do impact your participation. So for example, students tend to participate in classes with teachers they feel more identified with, right? And it's interesting because 
because there are some aspects of your identity that you can visibly share with your students, and then other things you have to actually self-disclose them to know um, what those similarities or differences might be. Um, but it's been interesting to find with most of my research that credibility is still the most important salient characteristic, which a lot of the instructional literature would tell us that too. But was it, what was interesting for me is that credibility was a stronger predictor of a lot of the learning outcomes. Uh, I don't want to say in spite of identity, but it kind of buffered the fact that potentially if your students don't feel identified with you, that if they still perceive you as credible, mm -hmm. then they will, right? But we know from some of the, the literature that uh, when students do see that divergent identity, it kind of might put up a wall with mm -hmm. them and uh, it impacts their learning. So I want to go back to some of this literature and really look at when we have I divergent identities in the classroom and kind of how that impacts learning. So I think that's a new so direction. So it, it's interesting yeah. the way you were describing the interrelationship of those variables. It, you, you could say that credibility is a necessary but not sufficient right. variable yeah. for learning in the classroom. Yeah. Um, so it has to be there. But but I almost hear you saying that, okay, if I'm a teacher that, that has high credibility, but I, but I don't do things where my students would uh, maybe connect with me on a more personal level, mm -hmm. they, they'll, they'll still probably learn because of that credibility. But, but if I have that personal um, connection with them, or if I can establish it, yeah. where they identify with me and vice versa, yeah. that that's something that could really augment the learning Yeah, experience. and I think it, from, from what, what my literature has shown is that um, they'll participate more too, right? So when they they might actually seek out more like out-of-class communication mm -hmm. with you um, in the multitude of ways now that we have the capacity to do that. So I think um, there's more work to do uh, for sure. But I think what I've been most proud of is that um, I've pushed us to think more about the fact that identity has a place in the classroom. Yeah. Before we talk about the identity of, of millennial and post-millennial yeah. students, in your example and, and in the ways that you talked about this issue of identity, diversity seems like it's a big component of mm -hmm. that. So as a scholar and, and a diverse person yourself, how, how do you characterize the role of diversity in modern educational yeah. experiences? I mean, you know, it's something that we all know is important, but but it seems like your research is saying that there's more to it than, you know, than it just being um you know, a superficial thing. Right, it's really right. an inherent oh, part sure. of the learning yeah. process. So I think, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And I think part of it, because so much of the way that I look at the teaching and learning process is that it really is a relationship, right? So you do have to learn who your students are. So uh, I think we can't think that we just come in the classroom and share our content and, and that's all that we do, right? It has to be that content and relational dimension. But within that, I think it does take work and time to really form that relationship with your students to find out what their identities are and either to confirm what you think they are or to find out um, in the spaces where you might be inaccurate, right? Um, and so I think it takes work to do that and we have to do that work, right? So in some ways, it is thinking about your own identity and making conscious choices, like as we're all kind of in the summer months, what change are you going to make to your curriculum to really say, you know what, so much of the reading and the texts I have my students do are about this identity group. And I need to spend some time talking to my colleagues, you know, we have a wealth of diversity at our institution, and I, like others, others do as well. And what other texts am I missing? So who else should I have my students read or do things with? Or what documentary should I be watching that, that I normally wouldn't? So I think it really is t kind of taking stock and reflection of your own identity. And, you know, the old adage that we teach, you know, how we we were taught or we mm -hmm. learned how we were taught. And I really think we've moved past that and we have to really move out of that space to think that's true. So let me take stock of 
the typical pieces I gravitate toward and then really make a conscious effort to reach out to a diversity inclusion center or reach out to some of the other literature and actually put those things into your curriculum. And if you're not an expert, you bring in those colleagues into the room, right? Um, Because I think we have to do more of that. And I think that's the way that you enrich it, right? Or even ask your students. I I do a lot of this now. I ask them, what do you want to be talking about? And as we know with the post-millennials and the millennial students, they have access in ways that they didn't when, you know, we went to school. And we can't pretend that if we're not talking about an issue in the classroom, they're not thinking about it or they're not talking to their friends about it. So I think that harms our credibility as instructors when we aren't kind of where they are, right, meeting them in those spaces. So if we know that um, an issue like Ferguson is happening or we know that um, issues um, um, in Iran or other countries are happening, um, you know, even things like the Zika virus happening with the Rio Olympics, if we're not bringing those things to bear, our students are thinking about them and wondering why are we not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of as a, a related story, um, some of the work that I've done recently was on the Boston bombing. And it was about how students and teachers emotionally respond in those crisis situations. And one of the main things that came out from the instructors that we interviewed was you had to talk about it in the classroom because you knew your students were like you couldn't pretend that this thing didn't happen, right? right. And I think it's the same way. And partly I think it's because of how much access our students our students have, mm-hmm. right? So they they're consuming things in uh, in ways that uh, are so different than how we learned. And uh, I think we have to bring all those things to bear. But I think it's about knowing your own identity, knowing the spaces that sometimes you don't gravitate toward and kind of going there. But then mm-hmm. also knowing your students too, right? And so, for example, as a Caucasian woman, if I'm teaching a class that has all Caucasian students, I can't just say, oh, well, we're just going to read Caucasian you know, authors, right? So I am going to push us into talking about issues of whiteness or talking about those other things because um, it's important to do, right? Mm-hmm. And because those would be divergent identities, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, sometimes it's easy because I can talk about my research in those ways and bring that right. um, to bear. But even when I work with our graduate students, I talk to them a lot about, you know, bring your identity to bear in the classroom, Right. Um, and so that, I think, allows us to kind of open those spaces. But it takes time and effort. And mm-hmm. I think it's and, and intentionality. Well spent. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I hear a lot about what you say. Yeah. Is you have to be uh, more intentional and not assume that it will happen. Yep, absolutely. So. And I think um, it pushes us in different ways. You can't just recycle the same mm-hmm. curriculum that you've used for years. And I think that's refreshing. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. So it, it talk a little bit more about how you would characterize the identity of millennial and post-millennial yeah. students. So one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately and some some recent research that um, me and some of my grad students have done on peer feedback in the classroom, I'm really realizing what a salient group categorizer age is for them. And that I think they think either implicitly or explicitly about their age categorization and how that's similar or different to their teacher or to their other peers in the class. And I think there's something unique about that they they know they're millennials or they accept that term or they reject that term. Um, but something about their age group, I think, is a unique categorizer that I think is important to pay attention to. So when I think about that, that's what I think about. And um, I also think that they have a stronger affinity for intergroup contact. So what I mean by that is I think that they hunger for some of those um, interactions with diverse others, right? And thinking about the multitude of ways that we can be diverse um, in terms of our identity. Um, So I don't know for sure if they always seek out those opportunities, but I think if you build them in into a curriculum, they'll be receptive to it, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think they hunger for it. And I don't know how how readily they'll go seek it out. But if you create those opportunities for them, th- I think they they want that contact with, with them. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, thinking about some of the, you know, students that I, n- not necessarily college age, but even a little bit younger than that, of uh, the students that I, you know, talk to, 
I understand completely what you're saying yeah. that there there may be not the step forward, seek out everything, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. very receptive when they have the opportunity. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yep. And mm-hmm. so a large part, I think, of what teachers have to figure out then is how, how to, to do create that. opportunities. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. interesting. I, I was sitting in on one of my colleagues' classes toward the end of the last semester in a capstone class. And some of the students um, were doing a project on um, trans individuals. And um, all of them had said, you know, I didn't know anything about this this group or this, this um, um, these, these folks. And this really opened my eyes. And so having a project that probably said you need to go mm-hmm. do things with folks that are that don't have the same identity as you push them into that space and um, I think that contact was important mm-hmm. yeah interesting yeah. Um, also in your research you explore issues related to family mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm constantly interested in how family dynamics play a role in you know we don't think about the rest of the students social lives very yeah. much when they yeah. walk into our classroom doors they're sort of there and the class is there and yeah. that's the dynamic that we're most focused on but as you've said multiple times already in this interview we can't assume that students aren't walking in the door with right. things already right so as, as somebody that studied family how do you think that the family environment influences students as learners when they come yeah. in our classroom? Yeah, I think um, some of the most key takeaways for me in looking at some of that, the the family literature and education, has been the important role of parental involvement. Mm-hmm. And I think you hear that, you know, anecdotally, you know, on the news or TV, or you hear it from um, parent-teacher conferences, you know, be involved. But it was striking to me how as early as kindergarten, the impact of parental involvement has long-term lasting effects on your child's academic success. And um, having, having a daughter who's going into kindergarten or going into first grade, I remember thinking that. She's in kindergarten. I know this literature. I have to be involved. So, and I think that can happen in big and small ways, right? So if you can't actually devote time or your your body to doing something, you can ask questions about their day, spend time reading with them. But I think that that's been the most important thing that, that's been a takeaway for me is just how important parental involvement is. Mm-hmm. And not always thinking about that it has to be like big P parental involvement, like you have to volunteer 50 hours a week or, or whatnot, because not everyone can do that. But even just those small moments of even talking about education um, and creating some of those memorable messages about the importance of, of education and academic success um, is important to them. So I think that's been a huge a huge takeaway for me in thinking about parental involvement. How do you think that involvement changes as a student progresses through their educational yeah. experience? Like, you know, the way that you do that with a, a rising first grader would be different than, right. you know, a rising sophomore right. in high school versus a, a college student. Yeah, yeah. I think it's still about staying involved and knowing what they're doing, right? So um, I remember being in college and, and my dad would call me and just ask me like random questions about what book I was reading or um, what class I was taking, what was the hardest class. And at the time, I think I thought it was kind of annoying and he kind of <laughs> still does this to this day. He'll like call and play random songs for me. But um, but that's what he was doing. He, um, he didn't go to college himself, so he kind of relied on, I know she has to be reading books, or I know she has to be taking classes that are hard. So he would ask those kinds of questions. And um, so I think it's finding ways to stay connected with your children um, that are related to academics, right? So asking, you know, talking about the the um, the hard parts too. So I um, recently been doing some work on academic challenges with, um, with some of my grad students. And it was interesting to me how so many of the students talked about their family relationships being an academic challenge, which I don't think we would characterize mm-hmm. academic challenges as as constituting familial challenges, mm-hmm. but this is how the students were talking about that problems at home or um, other relational complications. So they think about 
I think their academics and their families intertwined a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And I think the danger would be for parents to kind of look at it as you're at school, family is here. Mm-hmm. So I think finding ways that you can connect and ask questions about um, the hard parts, right? Like what are the challenges as opposed to only wanting to know the good stories, I think would be um, important ways for college age Mm-hmm. parents of college-age students to get um, mm-hmm. involved. And then remember. So I think remembering what your children tell you about courses and following up with those things um, or, um, you know, asking questions about um, different teachers they have. And I think just kind of knowing kind of the lexicon of what they're doing in school as opposed to just the extracurricular kinds of things. Right. And of course, as educators, we have to think about the fact that we would have non-traditional Absolutely. students too, mm-hmm. and their family dynamic yep. Absolutely. would be completely different Absolutely. You know, because they might be the yeah. caregiver. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, like thinking about those relationships, mm-hmm. right? And you know, for some some educators, that's easier to do than others. Like I have colleagues who say, I don't really want to know anything about my students' lives. And so I try to tell them, well, the literature does indicate that when you do convey an interest, right? Um, it may not be that you know you think about them for hours on the day when you're not with them, but you are conveying to them that you care about what happens in their lives. They're more willing to self-disclose that information to you. And I think it helps you um, know how to target them for their learning too, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, so you're right. The non-traditional students have a lot of things that they also bring to bear in the classroom, and they're more willing to share those things with you too. So I think being open and receptive to hearing hearing those stories too. Yeah, I remember um, when I taught summer classes, a lot of times summer classes at the places that I worked would tend to have more non-traditional mm-hmm. students in the, in the classroom dynamic would be so different because yeah. of that fact yep. that they would be more willing to share in the, in the you know, the depth of discussion would yeah. be a, a, a totally different experience yep. mm-hmm. um, as a result. Yeah, of it's that. interesting with my dissertation work. I really wanted to compare what I was doing for non-traditional students and traditional students because mm-hmm. of that experience mm-hmm. that I shared in the beginning, because it was a non-traditional student and I was a non-traditional student too. Um, but of course, my committee said do that later in your <laughs> life, right? <Yeah>. So. <laughs> Limit the scope. It's true. <laughs> My guest is Dr. Angela Hosick from the Ohio University Scripps College of Communication. We've been talking about the identities of millennial and postmillennial students and, and learned that, you know, the idea of identity is something that's not only very broad, but also very essential to the learning experience for those students. Um, Angela, you and I have recently collaborated on an article looking at sort of the um, the needs of, of millennial and post-millennial students from a communication point of view. And one of the things that we talked about in that article was a metaphor of scripting and coding, uh, which I think is a very interesting way to think about not just what scripting and coding is, but how that sort of mm-hmm. plays a role in the way that we think about other things that we do in our lives. You want to talk a little bit about what that metaphor is all about? Sure. And this was such a fun collaboration, so I'm so glad that we did it. <laughs> and this metaphor has really I've been really, really meaningful, and I've shared it with a lot of people. So, um, so it's, it's, uh, it's. I think it's lasting and it has impact. So, um, the notion of coding uh, really comes to bear from the ways in which people who code uh, create new ideas, new and new platforms and new ideas. Or mm-hmm. when you think about like gaming, it's like creating a new, a new game, right? Mm-hmm. Or creating new syntax or whatnot for a computer code. And so there are folks, I think, that do that new work. So they create something that hasn't been there before. And that's the notion of coding. And so the scripting piece really gets at that kind of a uh, a scaffolding is there or there's like a framework that's already there. And then thinking about being able to edit and adapt that to then create something new. So the metaphor that that we, we 
created, talks about how we really think the millennials and the post-millennial students are really more scripters than they are coders. They do really well when they can take and consume information or consume media and create something else that's new as a result of that, right? So the way that I think about this in the education sense is that sometimes there are instructors who are nervous about giving their students uh, the PowerPoints or they're concerned about giving them examples of, of speeches or examples of papers or previous student work because we want them to be coders, right? But I think when we reframe and we think about them being scripters, we recognize why they yearn and want those uh, touch points, right? Because they want to just see the scaffolding, right? They want to mm-hmm. see the script and then they'll take that and make it better, right? And so I think that's been really meaningful for me to think about how I train um, our graduate students and how I talk to other colleagues about that it's okay to give the script, if you will, because they're going to make it their own anyway because they'll consume it and do something new with it. But sometimes they need that framework. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it's interesting as I've kind of paid attention to the types of media content that my daughter and some of her friends consume. So there's all these things on YouTube and, and other social media outlets that are sort of, um, uh, sort of, for lack of a better word, people doing videos on how they do things like set up their art room or how they yeah. create art projects, you know, and so... It's like Pinterest. Pinterest is basically exactly, a script. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and, and what I noticed is that my daughter and her friends will watch those things and then create their own that, you know, I wouldn't say is completely different from what they watched. Right. I mean, a lot of the similar concepts, but they make it their own mm-hmm. by, you know, talking about their own room and mm-hmm. the way that they, you know, organize their own art supplies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting to see how they do exactly what you're talking about, where they take sort of a template, but then figure out how to make that template right. their own idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that what, you know, we were trying to say is that that's, that's endemic to this generation mm-hmm. because they've grown up with so much information that very little of their time is spent creating from scratch. Right, right. It's more figuring out, okay, what information is out there and then how do I adapt it? Mm-hmm. And it seems like for me that really changes the mm-hmm. role of the teacher, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, as a teacher, um, you know, do you view your role as, I mean, how, how do you how do you teach yeah. an environment of scripters yeah. versus coders? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really opened up, you know, so much in terms of having language now to talk mm-hmm. about things that I think I've done anyway, or I've tried to impart, but now having a language that I think you explain to some people or, you know, quickly go, oh, yes, I totally get it. And um, I think so much of, uh, so many of us were probably taught to be coders and whether we really were or not. So I think it's, it is this gap in terms of like letting go of, I want them to create something completely new and just saying to them, you know, do an assignment on something innovative and that's all you give them, right? And the students are resisting you saying, well, I I don't really know what you want or I don't know like what are the parameters, what's the page limit or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And we get frustrated by those questions because we think I'm giving you innovation. I'm giving you, um, you know, all this opportunity to kind of go wherever you want. And um, some of the the information literacy literature will tell us this too, that students, they they don't do well with so much freedom, right? So they, it scares them, it makes them nervous. So having Having this script for them, if you will, I think gives them a beginning structure, right? Mm-hmm. So so I think it's a, the notion of being okay with giving them the script. So um, I remember I had a colleague at my former institution would, would talk about how he would get frustrated about having to teach students, like basically what he thought life skills were, like how to study or to eat before they yeah. came to class or do all of that. And he said, you know, I, I just had to give it up. Like I really had to 
just say, okay, this is what I have to do, right? And I think this goes back to our mutual colleague, Ken Kira's work that um, you and I both studied with him, uh, that you have to teach learners how to learn, right? So you can't think that they're getting it someplace else. Like it is part of our job to to teach them how to do those things. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe even helping students understand that it's okay that you're asking these questions and this is potentially why, right? So you want the script and it's not a bad thing. But I think there's some dissonance there between educators not wanting to give yeah. the script. I mean, so maybe talking about it this way will make it more palatable. You know, I think one of the one of the potential, um, I don't know, criticism is the right word, but one of the potential concerns that people might have is that the more that you, you know, the more that you create a scripting versus rather than coding environment, um, that you're um, putting parameters on that creates comfort for the students, yeah. but it also maybe would limit the ability mm-hmm. for them to develop creativity yeah. skills. Yeah, and I think the answer to that is that you give them the option. You can use this or create something else. And mm-hmm. a colleague of mine, um, Pratt Bennett, out of uh, Berkeley College in, uh, in Boston, he talks about um, students will come to him after some students will do one presentation better than another presentation. And the students will say, well, I didn't know that I could do that. And he said, neither did I. You know, So mm-hmm. I think it's really setting up that expectation that you have this, but you don't have to use it and, and really being... Uh, truthful and honest to that. So students go off script, if you will, right. and it still meets the objectives that you reward that. Mm-hmm. So part of your duties uh, as a faculty member is to direct a very large uh, set of sections of public speaking. So, you know, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 35 to yeah. 40 public speaking sections each term and, um, you know, close to 2,000 students a year, uh, multiple instructors. Mm-hmm. And so that that course traditionally, and, and most listeners that have taken a public speaking mm-hmm. course probably had a very similar experience. Right. There are certain types of speeches that mm-hmm. you're required to give. Mm-hmm. There are certain techniques that are, are fairly universally taught and have been so for decades, mm-hmm. you know, not yes. just years, but decades. Yes. So as you're thinking about an administrator of a course like this um, that, you know, clearly has ideas about about innovation in the educational environment, but yet teaching in a course that has such a historic momentum mm-hmm. in the way that it's mm-hmm. taught, have you thought about ways that you could adapt a public speaking course to be more like this scripting yeah. environment that you've yeah, been talking yeah. about? Yeah, yeah, and I actually would would, uh, would love the opportunity to kind of start from scratch and create a course that was just like this scripting uh, idea, so hopefully I'll do that eventually. But yeah, I think um, before I came back to the academy, I was a curriculum designer and a corporate trainer, and the company that I worked for had this mantra about continual improvement, continual innovation. And there's so many reasons why I'm glad that I spent time doing that before I went back to get my PhD. But the notion of continual improvement just re- and redesigned just really stuck with me. And I think that I've approached my role as a, a basic course director because in a unique way because of that experience because I'm I'm kind of always thinking about how can I innovate how can I hack at things but doing it incrementally right so this is going into my third year here and there's some things that we've changed so we use uh, an ebook now that's totally digital so the students are reading and um, consuming things in a, an adaptive learning environment and they take their quizzes online now as well and um, but I've really been thinking a lot lately about how can we harness doing new things right so. Um, so yes, I've been thinking about this a lot in this uh, coming semester. Uh, we're actually going to put some some uh, some pavement, so right, pavement to the ground, uh, where we're going to pilot uh, a series of other sections that are going to have a new curriculum. So um, two things I've always wanted to do with the basic course is really have students doing uh, 
work that is advocacy that's meaningful to them and has a strong impact in their community um, and something that they can see. The value of presentational speaking and sharing ideas and argumentation in ways that are really lifelong, theoretical, grounded, and practical skills that they're going to use forever, right? So, um, and there's much that you can do in 15 weeks. You can't do do everything. But uh, so doing things that are actionable and meaningful in those ways, but then also creating space for them to do these presentations in real natural, potentially high-stakes environments, right, potentially with key stakeholders. I think too often in this traditional space, we have them doing a stand-up speech in front of students who never get to interrupt them. They just do their five minutes, and then they're done, right? Mm -hmm. So I've... I want to create an environment where students have options. So from a learning center approach, they have options for how they do this. So uh, for for a long time, I've wondered, why can't we do a setup like you and I are doing for a presentation? Or why can't we do something via Skype or do something um, out on the you know the college green uh, or with key stakeholders and have those folks' uh, perceptions of your impact part of your grade, right? So how it really works. Or if you're giving a presentation and it's, it's making no sense or the sources aren't valid, some Somebody should stop you in the middle and say, where did you get that? Or can you tell me more? So really finding ways to make the presentational environment mirror the things that they'll probably do in their career. So so how we're going to do this this semester is we've really been thinking a lot about how the course is thematic and it builds on themselves. So I think sometimes in the traditional format with this course, the students do their five speeches, but they never see a connection between how did all these things build to each other or how did they uh, relate to each other uh, or how did I get better from week one to week 15. So really doing a, a concerted, conscious effort to really show them that scaffolding and that thematic um, building. So I'm hoping to pair with some of our visual media folks to kind of help kind of show them visually what that looks like. So that way it taps into some of that visual brain learning too. But I've really been thinking a lot, uh, and this shouldn't surprise you given the nature of the kind of work that we do and the, and the, the building we're in, but how we can really reframe presentational speaking as, as storytelling. And so we're going to have them really think about uh, the stories of themselves, so kind of sharing who they are in terms of their identity, um, which should, shouldn't surprise you given everything else right. that we talked <laughs> about today. But then stories of others, right? So thinking through... If you are, um, Deanna Fassett talks about how we shouldn't train uh, presentational speaking students to speak for anyone. We should tra- train them to speak with folks, right? So as they're thinking about advocating and doing a project about advocacy, and so potentially that puts them into some of the Appalachian communities here, those students should go interview the, some of those folks there or kind of do some kind of um, oral history kind of work to kind of let them know who these people that they're speaking with are, Right. So having them do some presentations like that. Um, but along the lines of information literacy, having them think about stories as evidence, right? So I would really like to see our students really find good sources and evidence and then have to tell us and tell us a story about why this evidence is useful and valuable, right? So it's actually a presentation about your evidence, right? Um, and then uh, thinking about advocacy, so stories of change, so if we're advocating for um, improvements or we're advocating for policy changes, and having all of that kind of grounded from all of these other presentations they've done. So why do you care about this issue? That's probably part of your story of yourself. Then your story of, of others that probably informed the, the presentation you're giving us here and then thinking through about your evidence um, that's informing how you're persuading us to change things. And then I think an important piece, usually with the presentational speaking courses, they just stop there. You, you argue for your issue and your idea and it's done. But that's not usually how it works. So usually it works that you go home, especially in our current environment, and you're talking about the your political candidate of choice with your father that I was doing earlier today, and you're having to argue and advocate for your idea. 
then you're sitting at a different dinner table and somebody else disagrees with a different opinion and you have to adapt your message <clears throat> to that audience. So we want to kind of round out the end of the semester. How do you adapt those stories? So you've spent all semester really understanding why you care about an issue about yourself, where the forms of evidence come from, who these folks that you're advocating for are. So now you get in a space where these people are not all sharing your ideas and you're in a, a space where people are challenging you. Um, and then how are you now going to present a new message, right? So then we kind of leave them at the end of the semester with, you know, kind of what's next, right? So you're going to have to share and argue and communicate your ideas and defend them in grounded ways. How are you going to take all this research you just did and now argue it with somebody who potentially might disagree with you? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the key takeaway at the end of the semester is now, you know, how do you adapt it? So when you're in new situations and environments, what do you do um, with that? So and I think that there's ways for us to do this in more multimedia ways, right? So if students, you know, want to interview folks via Skype or they want to do, you know, do an interview in a situation similar like this. But I think we need to find ways to allow them to open up the spaces with which they give their presentations, and those be okay too. So if they do something with, um, let's say, um, my sister's place, that they can go do that final presentation with those stakeholders or bring and them to the classroom. And my sister's place is a local yes, abuse shelter. Yeah, um, in Athens, yeah. yeah. So I think we can bring those people to the classroom and kind of reach out to the community in those ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, piloting, it's a good idea. I, I'm, I'm very good on incremental kind of things, right? But then I think seeing how this works and, um, you know, other institutions that have, um, you know, more... Uh, a larger community to bear can probably have a, a stronger infrastructure to kind of send all their, you know, 2,000 students out a year. But I think giving our students choice in terms of what are the groups of folks that they do things with or who they who they want to talk to um, or the issues that they, they want to uh, spend time with in the semester, I think we have to be open to letting them go beyond the local environment too, so long as we allow them also to tap into the social media, to tap into, you know, why can't a student do an interview on Twitter or Skype? So yeah. I think that there's ways that we need to, again, give them those options and move out of our own comfort zone yeah. and let them do those interviews and do that gathering and, inform and information mining in, in different ways. By the way, I'm sure that Adam would be happy to record all 2,000 students doing interviews yes. in here. So. <laughs> um, yes. You know, one of the things that you were talking about that I think is uh, interesting, um, you know, you were talking about how we, we often teach, do your speech and then you're done. But, but the reality is, is that that conversation is ongoing. There's a really great metaphor from um, a, uh, a, a scholar named Kenneth Burke. It's his parlor metaphor. Um, and he, he writes in, a, in one of his books that when we enter into a dialogue with someone, there, there was a beginning of that dialogue that happened way before us. Right. And there's a there's a piece of that dialogue mm -hmm. that will go on way after yeah. we leave. And, and he used the parlor metaphor to say it's like if you walk into somebody's house yeah. and they're having a conversation in a parlor, you kind of came in midstream. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you're, and you're probably as yeah. a polite person will leave before it's over. <laughs> um, and you've kind of flipped that in a really interesting way in saying that the, the dialogues that we as individuals choose to engage in has uh, beginning points and, and ending points that that go beyond any particular moment that we're in. Right. So if we're giving a speech in a class, that dialogue that we're engaging right. in with those peers mm -hmm. that we're speaking in front of, there was actually something that happened before that that drew Absolutely. us into that. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, when we go home, yeah. you know, we'll draw into it in a different way. Right, and I think that too often we we think that the 18-year-old freshman student has thought about all their ideas. So sometimes when you'll ask them, well, you're going to do a persuasive speech in this traditional format, pick a topic, and 
they'll sit there and say, I don't, I don't know what I care about. I don't care about anything. So really, I want to make them spend an entire 15 weeks thinking about what's that issue you care about and mm-hmm. why do you care about it? So one activity we're going to have them do is, is kind of do like a genealogy kind of thing. Like you care about this. Well, who else in your family cares about this? Why, oh, did you, why do you care yeah. about this? Let's do some research. Do some research. Week five, do you still feel the same way that you did about that issue now that mm-hmm. you've done some research, right? So really spending that whole semester to really give them an opportunity to know that I know how to argue this idea. And I think too often we see, you know, from a civic engagement space, unfriending friends who disagree with you on Facebook or not spending time engaging with your dad who dis- who, who you have different political uh, affiliations with. Um, and so that doesn't help us engage in our civic dialogue, right? right. Or doing it from an evidence-based perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So saying, I just don't agree with this person, it's okay that you don't agree with them, but explain why. And I think giving them a whole semester to think about an issue they really care about and why they care about that issue and now what research do they have to kind of ground and back up that idea Mm -hmm. that potentially may have just been a feeling they had, right? Yeah. So So you've talked um, uh, quite a bit about what you as a teacher want to do, but Mm -hmm. you're also a parent Mm -hmm. and and you have have kids at different ages, but both of them are either, you know, very early in elementary school or about to enter. What what are things that you yourself do as a parent, knowing the type of environment that your children are going Mm -hmm. into? And then what advice would you give to parents, you know, besides yourself about, you know, how to think about preparing their young student for success? Yeah, I love this question, actually. I was talking to my partner, Tim, about it this morning, and I think there's little ways that we've thought about it, but this question really made me think (laughs) deeper about it. Um, So I think for us, um, we have a daughter who'll turn six next month and a a son who just turned three, and our daughter's moving into first grade. And so I think we have really tried hard to make the consumption that they do have at this early age about learning goals. So one program that they use, um, ABC Mouse, is a really good learning platform for them. Um, and so we try to make sure that the things that they are consuming are do have some educational component to them. But, you know, we also let them have access to hack, too. So if they want to use our phones, we give them to them. Or if they want to play around with our iPads, we we let them do that. Um, because I think it's important that that, that just kind of becomes a natural part of the landscape mm-hmm. of our house, right? Um, so those things are there. Um, recently, a friend of ours inquired um, on Facebook to a group of friends about um, getting like what programs were out there to let kids start learning how to code. Mm -hmm. And it might have been right around the time when we were working on our piece. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Like I never would have thought about my kid needing how to code, learning how to code now. And I have a good friend who does lots of coding. And she was like, yes, absolutely. They need to learn how to do that. So where I think about advice that I have that I'm trying to take myself as a parent um, is I'm really good at like hacking and tinkering with things. Like when we decided to move and transition to the online platform, I spent about two weeks and just taught myself how to do things. And um, so I'm really good about that. But I thought, to myself, I have no idea how to do the coding work. I don't know, but mm-hmm. I have friends who know. So I think for me is that as a parent, it's always been about recognizing maybe what I don't know and that I still have to keep hacking and I still have to keep learning and playing. It's not enough to say, I don't know how to use that tool. Go figure it out yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to ever be that parent who yeah. who doesn't stay engaged with the technology in some way. And I'm sure they, our, our students and our, you know, our children know how to do things and consume things in way, way different uh, ways than we did or know a lot about different platforms and programs. But I keep at it. So I try to stay kind of in that hacking environment to kind of keep learning and keep Keep um, keep abreast of kind of what those tools are in terms of like the the learning component. But what I think I've been most amazed by is that 
Uh, I think too often we think that kids or our students in terms of advice, they know how to do sometimes more. We think they know how to do more than they do. Yeah. And I'm often astonished how when I hear my grad students say, well, I don't understand how my student didn't know how to find this on Blackboard or how to upload this thing. And I think they're really good about gravitating toward the things that they like and not necessarily some of the learning tools and function functionality kinds of programs. So I think helping them learn how to do that. So for example, um, it's likely that when your students become into college that they're going to be doing things with e-readers or they're going to be reading textbooks all online. So starting to get them to do that now, whether it's on a computer, it's on a tablet or a Kindle, I think is useful for them because that's the environment they're coming into. Learning how to take quizzes and doing those kinds of things uh, in some of those learning management platforms um, like ABC Mouse or other ones, I think is going to help them in the end because that's kind of where I see a lot of the, the textbooks going when students get to college or where they the cognitive learning pieces of that that they'll do a lot of those things online. Uh, and there's ways to start helping them do all of that mm -hmm. now. But but I think um, I have to keep thinking about this. So I think for, for sure I know that I'm going to stay in that kind of hacking vibe. So like I'm going to keep tinkering and keep learning. And I think that that's good. My kids will see that too, right? So mm -hmm. I don't get frustrated and hit the computer when I can't figure <laughs> out something, as I see my daughter do sometimes. And so we talk <laughs> about that problem solving. Like if you can't do this, what do you need to do? Step away from it, you know, click this thing to close it. So kind of helping them work through that frustration because – with some of the more traditional learning management systems, I see our students get frustrated with those mm -hmm. things and just say, I don't know what to do. And so I think giving them opportunities to kind of work through some of that in funner ways when they're younger, I think will be helpful for them when they get to school. But it was, but also as a parent, that when your kid calls you and says, I don't know how to take this quiz, you know what they're talking about, or mm -hmm. you've kind of played around doing some of that on some of the you know apps on your phone or whatnot, as you have access to, like public libraries have have good um, access to some of those things too. Mm -hmm. You know, um, my, my daughter, who's, who's a little bit older than your kids, obviously. She, um, one of the things I've noticed with her is that you're, you're, you would be correct in making the assumption that she's completely comfortable in a digital environment, yeah. um, and she she can pick up things quickly. But it's always purpose driven. So, right. so whereas you know our generation, we might say, okay, I'm going to learn Photoshop, and that means you know I'm going to diligently learn how to do all the different things in Photoshop and you're as not, possible. You're just hack and, she yeah. just hacks and does what she and, needs and to do. And she does what she needs mm -hmm. to do. If she wants to remove red eye, she'll do that, right. and that's it, that's or it. crop, or whatever. Uh -huh. And and so and I think that's that's a way to think about. And I think it's also consistent with the scripting, mm -hmm. uh, you know, metaphor right. that the students, um, the millennial and post millennial students in a digital environment, will learn what they need to do. Right. Right. to accomplish what they want to right. accomplish. But there might be a lot of things that are just on the periphery mm -hmm. of that that are completely irrelevant to them right. that right. won't be a part yeah. of the repertoire. And I think as parents, because we are from different generations, it's really important to think about that. Like my, my partner's learning how to play guitar, and I think he was reluctant for a long time because he was like, I have to learn all the ins and outs of this. So finally I, I set him up with lessons because I knew that's how he would work. Where I think with some of the millennials, they would just learn the chords they need to play to play this one song. They wouldn't need to necessarily need to learn all the chords progressions or all the different keys because they would just learn how to play this one mm -hmm. song that they wanted to learn right and I think that's different in terms of, and also not getting frustrated with your children just understanding that these are different learning learning styles right that uh, it's okay that maybe they won't need to learn every single chord progression yeah. to play this one song so. as long as you have a red guitar and CG and D you're fine right, right. for most of rock and roll <laughs> that's what Bono says so. well Angela I want to thank you for uh, being a part of uh, Teaching Matters and being on the program today thank you so much this is so great yeah it's been great talking yeah. uh, thank you for listening to Teaching Matters which is produced by WUB Public Media you can always listen at WUB 
facebook.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth. Special thanks to Tim Vickers of Ohio University Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WUB Public Media, thank you for listening, and have a great day.